Are you self-employed and looking to get a home loan? Do you want to buy a property with your super fund? Or has your mortgage application been knocked back and you need a solution? At Better Mortgage Management, we specialize in solutions for home and investment loan borrowers. With over 50 loan products and 23 years lending experience, we have the flexibility and expertise to help you achieve your property dreams. Call us at 1300 857 275 to discuss how we can help you. This podcast is brought to you by Better Mortgage Management. You're tuning into Cancer Culture, a podcast all about cancer. My name is Jackie Cowan, and I'm an ex-cancer patient and also your host. I'm on a mission to let cancer patients and people affected by cancer know that they are not alone. Throughout this episode and the course of the podcast, you'll hear stories from people who are currently enduring cancer, lost loved ones to cancer, or whose lives have permanently been scarred and changed by cancer. This podcast can be both insightful and sad, so please strap in as it's one for the brave. I'm most definitely not a medical practitioner, however, a survivor of an illness who wishes to bring individuals together through hope, genuine human interaction and storytelling. You're listening to another episode of Cancer Culture. My name is Jackie Cowan, and today we are with a very special guest, a dear friend of mine, Alex. It is, in fact, his father, Gary. How are you? Very well, thank you. That's good. So today we're going to have a little chat about Gary's experience with cancer and I guess get into the nitty-gritty of that. And this isn't your first time sharing your story, is it? No, I've um, been quite an advocate, really, over the period since I had cancer for the journey and I've made myself available to assist people that want to talk about it. So, yeah, I've talked about my experiences and my journey, community radio, but I've, I've spoken to printed media and a lot over the years. A story to be told. Yeah. It, every story, every single person who's been treated for cancer has got a story, and that's one of the things that um, that I kind of bank on. One of the things that I'm doing a lot these days is assisting at the Royal Brisbane Hospital in a sort of a, a representative capacity meeting meeting people and so on. And what I br- bring to a place like a hospital is stories so that the experts, the clinicians and the, and the treating staff and so on c- can relate to stories that I'm bringing to them. So everyone's got a different story and every single one is going to have an impact on the way that they're either experiencing life or being treated, whatever it might be. Absolutely. And so there was a time where cancer had not affected your life. I want to know a little bit about your upbringing and where you're from. And we spoke before previously about how you've spent a fair bit of time in the Grange. We both had our stints in the Grange and Newmarket. Could you let us know a little bit about what that time was like? I won't go through all 67 years for you. That would be interminable. But I'm an army brat. Mum and dad were, at least my dad was an army officer. So we spent a lot of time travelling around the place. So I grew up, I like to boast that I went to about 24 schools before I hit high school. So there's a lot of moving around the place, but it was a very happy childhood and so on, very healthy, sporting type of childhood. Settled in Brisbane and went through school and university here. So I graduated as a lawyer eventually, and I spent my career more or less with the government in as a lawyer, f- acting for the government in various uh, capacities. Based in Brisbane, but uh, there was a, a bit of travelling around the place. But married the, the most wonderful girl in the world from the Grange and then had three boys, one of which is your mate Alex. And the cancer came to me when I was about 50, 51, so it's quite young. It was head and neck cancer. It was what they call occult, which means that they couldn't find the primary cancer. It was somewhere in my head and or neck. They don't know still where it was. And so that meant that at age 51, I had to be treated in a very broad sense. And so I had surgery to remove all of the lymph glands that, ru- that run down the side of my neck and, and head. They all had to come out and then I had to have some chemotherapy to zap whatever was left of inside if they could find it or and then I had to have radiation treatment as well that was over about uh, about a month and a bit daily radiation treatment so there was a lot happening there for the sort of treatment side of things. Did they call it head and neck cancer? 
But that's a sort of a, it's a sort of a categorisation. There are about a million different types of cancer, aren't there? My, mine was head and neck. The particular type of cancer was what's called an SCC, a squamous cell carcinoma. And it was, they thought, somewhere inside my mouth or my throat, but they couldn't find the primary. So they just had to zap me for everything and hope that it hadn't jumped and gone somewhere else. So head and neck cancer is treated by specialists who specialise in that. So my surgeon was an ear, nose and throat surgeon. And then when I went to the, to the sort of cancer treatment with chemotherapy and radiation, I was treated more generally in terms of the best way to zap me in whichever way that they were going to do it. Head and neck cancer can be really anywhere from around about the sort of the mid-range of the chest all, all the way up to the top. I want to ask two questions. Firstly, so I had Hodgkin's lymphoma, which I had stage four. So in terms of, I guess, the way that they diagnosed that was stage one was like from my hips up, stage two, hips and below. Okay. Uh, stage three was throughout my entire body. And then stage four was when it had reached my bones. Mm. So is that similar with Head and um, neck diagnoses? Do they I, have? I don't recall. I don't recall being told that I was at any particular stage. So it wasn't like anoma uh, is a type of skin cancer, and SCC, my my squamous cell, is a type of skin cancer. So it's on the surface. Now I know that that melanoma ha- has different stages because it, like Hodgkinson can jump and go to other areas and they talk about the stages being as to just how far it's jumped. My head and neck cancer didn't have stages per se, but they categorised it, as I said, as being occult. They didn't know what the primary was and so that sort of creates a sort of a type of treatment regime that they're going to adopt and so on. But I didn't have that. It was certainly a serious one because head and neck involves so many different things Mm. from taste all the way through to sight and range of movement and you can have things like really serious reconstructive work around your head and neck. Fortunately, I didn't have to go through that, but I, I have met many people over the years that have been courageously faced with that and got through it. How did you find out? What were the... <laughs> yeah, there was absolutely no no indicator at all. What happened was I was, I was working, as I said, working in a, a lawyer's office and it was my habit to go for a ride at lunchtime. I'd just ride around the CBD, come back, have a shower and go back to work. I had done that on this one particular day in, in October, I remember it well, and I had a shower, went back to my office, didn't put my tie back on and I was talking to someone on a phone, a client, and I said, I said, as I was talking to him, I was just rubbing my neck and I said to my client, do you know, I've just felt a lump in my neck. It's the most extraordinary thing. I'm just going to go and see my doctor. He said, well, you go, mate. Well, you go. <laughs> and that's exactly right what now. I did. Yeah, and that afternoon I saw the GP and he said, mate, we've got to run some tests. There was no, no indication at all. Now I'd been shaving over where this lump was. Wow. It was a lump that had, that had just formed on the, one of the lymph glands just under my right jaw. And it was, the, it was about three centimetres long. Now, I'd been shaving over the top of it. Now, I don't remember having seen it there before, so it was completely unheralded. Um, But the wonderful thing was that I did go and have it checked immediately and the sort of machinery of medicine kicked in and I was... I like to say that I was picked up by big, warm hands and carried through the whole process all the way through. So it started then. But there there was no symptoms or indication that there was anything happening until I just happened to rub my neck. That's amazing. It is amazing. You hear that actually happening quite a fair bit. Mm, do you? Yeah. yeah. People that I've, I guess I've spoken to or had discussions with throughout my journey, like I lost a lot of weight. Mm. I, could, I was constantly fatigued for like the whole of grade 12. Yeah. So there were big signs yeah. pointing towards my diagnosis, but I didn't, I was just like, oh, whatever, I'm in grade 12, yada, yada, yada. But in your situation, you just had no mm. idea. No, none. Did they give you any indication of how long it may have been there? The, they were talking about some months, not necessarily years and years. But of course, as with all of these things, these sorts of conditions arise because of something that's going and has been going on in your body and your life for some considerable time before it actually turns into a symptom. 
And you were just so, shaving over it. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Amazing. <laughs> oh, and Not even noticing. No. I put a lot of emphasis on, I guess, trying to encourage people to check their bodies and their lumps and their bumps. I'm sure you do still. You, you really do need to re- read your body and be aware of, in my case, skin. Because mm. I'm not now, but I used to be a redhead. Now I'm just a whitehead. But I used to burn like crazy just going out in the sun any, any length of time. And I, I, as a result of this, am now super critical or aware of whatever lumps and bumps in my body that there, that there are. So nowadays I go and see a dermatologist every six months and I tell him or her what's going on yep. my, on my skin. Which is good. At least you're aware of it. <laughs> and Terrific. And hyper aware. And absolutely everyone should go through the same. Yeah. Not and go through the same treatment, but go through the same procedure. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's so important to know your body because nobody else can pick up on as much as we can. So your treatment lasted six months, did you say? The way the actual treatment was firstly surgery. So that that, that was big because they had to, as I said, cut all the way down the right-hand side of my torso. So that took about six weeks to get over. And then I had some dental work because I was going to have radiation, so I had to have some teeth removed and all that sort of stuff because that got in the way of radiation. And then I started on the chemotherapy and the radiation, and that was concentrated together. They like to do the same, the two treatments together because they, I think the term is adjunct, they work together. And so that was over about a month and a half. And then there's the period after treatment because the effect of radiation particularly on on the inside of your mouth and your neck and so on, is to create really serious sort of burning of the flesh. And there is all sorts of difficulties associated with eating and swallowing and all that sort of stuff. So that went on for another three months or so. Wow, I really think like even you saying that and mentioning the dental work, that's something I never would have thought of. There's, I think people underestimate, people are aware of how hard cancer is and the journey that is. And But as, I think unless you're in that situation, you really don't, yeah, understand the length of... I've just never thought of that. Mm. No, nor had I, of mm. course. <laughs> and it was quite a shock to be told that, uh, that I had to have mo- most of the molars at the back of my mouth that I'd been protecting all of my life with going to the dentist and flossing and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. They were just going to come out. And so I ended up with really just the front sort of teeth that you see someone smile with, upper and lower, but that was what I had to chew everything with as well. Wow. And that, that, was, that, that was an issue for some years until I addressed that later on by having some implants put in. But, the but, sacrifices that we have to make, hey. Happily, <laughs> absolutely. A few teeth. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, Couple just take teeth. them out. No sweat. <laughs> yeah. So radiation was in your mouth? Radiation was, yeah, nowadays radiation is is much more clinically directed so they can actually affect radiation around things like teeth so they don't have to take out as many anymore. (laughs) But it was, and radiation basically is, it's a process whereby they can control where they're going to radiate to micro millimetres, but it it involves laying down on a sort of a plinth is the term that they use, and then they bolt your head down with a mask so you can't move anywhere. And there's very large, it's called a lineal accelerator, and I have no idea what it works in terms of the science, but it's a very large thing about the size of a large barbecue that's suspended over the top of you, and it rotates across your horizon, as it were, as you're being held down, and it's firing, it's firing these radiation into the affected area that that is mapped by the uh, by the specialist and so the machine behaves the way that the specialist wants the radiation to be affected and so on so each day i would go into the royal and and lay down for about 20 minutes to 30 minutes or so this big sort of barbecue went over the top and barbecue yeah, well that's what i call it the barbecue i was going to say that sounds absolutely terrifying yeah I wasn't real good. I'm not. I'm a bit of a sort of a fraidy cat when it comes to closed-in spaces, and I wasn't. I wasn't all that pleased about having this mask. They moulded onto my face and then bolted it down to this plinth that I was lying. Oh. 
I've seen footage of what it looks like. I never had to have radiation, but yeah. the mask even in itself is quite scary. Yeah. But yeah, I had an MRI the other day in Cairns and I forgot how much I hated confined spaces yeah. and the noises yeah. and yeah. just the unknown and yeah. Yeah. So doing that every day. Yeah. I have to say that this is one of the really consistent aspects of my treatment and my experience with cancer is that the clinical staff, the people that were assisting and affecting all of these treatments were just absolutely magnificent at every turn, just absolutely positive, absolutely bright, supportive, and I just drew confidence from them. I just knew that they knew that what they were doing. I just had complete faith in them, and that helps. That mm. really does. So that's what they do, and then that has an immeasurable sort of benefit to the patient, I think. It's amazing, hey. It is amazing. Yeah, you, you know what you're doing. <laughs> but as I said, big warm hands. I just felt I felt completely confident that they were doing the very best. Whatever was going to happen was going to happen. But I just knew that the people that, I, that, that were looking after me just knew what they were doing and had my very best interests at heart. And it just, it never changed. It was always the same. Magnificent. What hospital were you in? I had the surgery done in private hospital at St Andrews and the Wesley, but the treatment for radiation and chemo was done at the Royal. Okay. Interesting. So you had your treatment in a public hospital and... Okay. Hmm. So you got to see... Yeah, very much both. so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And each had their own idiosyncrasies. Generally, as a matter of scale, the public hospital at the Royal is massive, and but that didn't change the staff. Yeah. The staff at all of them are just uniformly magnificent. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. That's something I'd like to look into, which I can talk to you about later. But yeah, just the, I don't know, people yeah. talk about different differences between the hospitals and whatnot. They do. Yeah, mm. they do. I, like a founding member, a, a original member of the Head and Neck Cancer Support Group that was set up about the same time as I came out of treatment by a wonderful fellow, Marty Doyle, who has carried the organisation through. But it was under the auspices of the Cancer Council. And sitting in meetings, we meet, or I'm a little bit naughty nowadays, I'm a bit truant nowadays, but we would sit once a month and just talk about what was going on. And there were different stories about about the way that the people were treated, whether it was successful for them or whether not so successful, whether they felt they could have been treated better. Almost everyone had the same positive experience as us in terms of the staff, but it's the advice and so on was a problem. But there was virtually no difference between the treatment in a private as opposed to a public hospital. And that's one of the most consistent things, again, in my experience, that there's very little difference, but obviously there are differences in terms of the carpet. Yeah. <laughs> How much you pay. <laughs> How much you pay. You can have absolute faith that, that the end result will be pretty much the same in terms of the quality of the results that you get and the treatment that you get. Always a delay simply, again, because of scale. Which brings so, me to my next question. Do you still get checkups? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So, I, as I said, I see my dermatologist every six months and I see my surgeon once a year and I see the medical, no, the radiation on, oncologist once a year as well. So I stagger all those. Yeah, I've got my medical team behind me. Yeah. And there's no reason on earth, medically, why I should be seeing them because after 10 years they say that officially it's no longer an issue but I can't live without it. I really just need to go and see these guys just to have them say, I can't see anything, Gary. <laughs> it's peace of mind, hey. It is peace of mind, yeah. And at least you're being thorough. I suppose I'm being thorough, yeah. In your terms, you <laughs> are. But that's what you have to do. You've come through this incredible thing had a really scary thing happen to you like I think that only makes sense that you'd want to be thorough and who knows maybe when you slacked off being thorough yeah and <clears throat> there's other aspects as well it's not just it's not just the sort of physical medical side of things but I saw a psychologist for a long time after my treatment because of my anxiety associated with recurrence and whilst whilst I'm not seeing my psychiatrist anymore at the moment. It's it's something that I really f felt was very beneficial for my recovery and became absolutely an essential part of the, the sort of getting on with life. 
the new normal. So there's that sort of checkup as well. So there's the physical checkup as well as the emotional. Yeah. Which is a lot of what this podcast is about. Mm. I want to also talk about the mental health side of things. When you're going through a diagnosis, I know personally there was always a kind of a worst case scenario. They prepare you for the worst. Was there ever, I guess, did they ever mention how it could progress or what that could look like? No, I was never given any particularly dire sort of prognosis. There were helpful hints about it might be as well for you to get your affairs in order, which is legal speak for get a will, for God's sake. So there was some discussion about that, but the, there was never any particular talk about the length of time that I've got and all that sort of stuff. It's not necessarily that type of cancer. Mm. Although my, mine had metastasized, had moved on from wherever the original was, it wasn't the sort of thing that necessarily recurs in that particular area. And I did ask the question, is it the sort of thing that's going to be with me forever? The answer is yes, it's going to be with you forever, but it's not necessarily the sort of thing that's going to crop up in organs and uh, other parts and of your body. We didn't have to... Uh, we didn't have to concern ourselves apart from our own mental processes about the future. Yeah, that's a good so thing. Yeah, it was a good thing. I think they prepared us for the worst. Yeah. I was 17, so my will would have... Be brief. <laughs> <laughs> my iPod and clothes that's and... <laughs> you can have my Pokemon cards. You know? <laughs> yeah, you can have my Tamagotchi and uh, yeah. my board games. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my school uniforms. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah, I guess this brings me to my next point. Sadness, distress, depression, fear and anxiety are all normal feelings when learning to deal with cancer or a diagnosis. But ignoring these feelings or not talking about these feelings can make people with cancer feel really alone and or isolated. What was this time like for you, for your mental health, like being a dad as well, of three boys and a husband? And yeah. yeah, all of those things that you just mentioned there before about aloneness, anxiety. And as you say, as a family guy, I spent a lot of time thinking about the future of my family without me. So there was a lot of that sort of stuff. I just remember becoming absolutely self-absorbed and it's a great tribute to the love and devotion of my family that they wore that because they had to because I just wasn't in a giving sort of thing at all. I was completely dependent upon others for emotional ballast. I just remember the impression I have about the time from diagnosis for some as long as a year or so after treatment. I just remember having this feeling of being in a sort of a glass case where it was all dark inside the case and all light outside the outside this box. And I just, you watch the world go on doing their thing. People going about their business, whatever they might do. My family doing the same and here's me in this dark box looking out and it was a sense that the world was getting on careless of my problem. I just wanted to shout out, hey, you, everyone, listen, I'm going through this. So that, that sense of aloneness is ab absolutely right. And, of course, the anxiety about what's going to happen in the future and what's going to happen with my job and uh, all those sort of things crowd in on you as well. So it was a really dark time, helped, I think, by the fact that I was given good advice by my GP early, go and have a talk to a counsellor of some sort, so you can just talk it, just talk about it. And and that helped me so much by going and seeing my, my psychiatrist. He just sat there and listened. <laughs> it was pretty simple. Of course, he knew what he was directing me to talk about, but that that was a that, that was a really important aspect of it all. But it, yeah, there was a darkness about it that a lot of people that have been through similar journeys. Was it the first, were you the first person in your family to be affected by cancer? My dad was killed by cancer that, that, that had jumped, but I had been diagnosed before before he, he died. Wow. There, so there was, he, we knew that he was suffering from prostate when I was diagnosed with, with head and neck. But my, yeah, so dad was about the closest that, that I, not the closest, but about the only sort of family member that I was aware of that had died from cancer. My father's mother 
had cancer, but that isn't what killed her. She went in her 90s from being old. Yeah. But so there had been cancer in the family. That is pretty crazy about your dad and you both having it at similar times. Very different, obviously, different kinds of cancers, but... Yeah, yeah, it was. It brought us closer together in its own strange way. It was Absolutely. a kind of a club, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, you're like, come on down. Yeah, come on down, <laughs> mate. Oh. Also, like, the age difference would have been different in itself. Like, you can't really compare the two. And also, you had a young family at this point. How old were the boys? We had one in high school and two in primary. And as you say, as you said at the opening, that... Um, uh, I was the sort of fa- father, not only the, fa- the father figure, but the actual father. And uh, as I said, I just retreated into this sort of glass box of mine for a long time, which meant basically that my wife, Kim, had to take over. And so she, for a long time, was father and mother and disciplinarian and uh, an educator and all that sort of stuff. At the all very of the time above. I wasn't able to do it. So the boys, three boys, each... Yeah, about two years between each. The, they were magnificent in their own right in that they they never really descended into some into the sort of depths that they showed me. But the effect on them is disputable, really. They, they were living it just as much as I was, just without the symptoms. Do you think that may have been an age thing and I guess like an understanding... Yeah, the youngster, Alex, he didn't know much about it. And as much as possible, we tried to keep a routine going. When I came back from hospital, Kim insisted that I sit at the family table for dinner and all that sort of stuff, even though I was eating food that was very different to what they were eating. It was all pureed and just plonked on a plate. But that was it was important in her view, and she was absolutely correct, that, that we try to get as much normalcy as well. And so I would sit there and grey eminence at the end of the table, listening to the usual sort of cacophony of, of family dinner time. But it was a, it was good for them and it was good for me. So there, there, was, there, there was a lot of, a lot of sort of normalcy mixed in with an awful lot of abnormalcy because I spent so much time just lying in the bed feeling sorry for myself. Yeah. Unable to do much else. What are you meant to do? Yeah, there's no way. Yeah, it was just the way that the way that I was treated. I know people that have gone down the same sort of treatment regime that have kept on going to work and just maintained almost the same energy levels, but it certainly wasn't the case with me. I was talking to my Uber driver yesterday, and he told me about a girl at his CrossFit that is going through treatment for leukemia for the second time. Okay, and she goes to CrossFit. Yeah. Five times a week. People are amazing. But it's also this, like, sense of you have to recover. You're also... People can't expect you to just turn this off in terms of the mental health side of things. So sometimes all you can do is lie in bed. Did you... Like, I remember in primary school and high school when kids or, like, other schoolmates' parents would be diagnosed with cancer or an illness. All the parents, other parents would get involved and try and help out where they could. Is Did that happen to you? Oh, very much, very much. The community around us closed ranks, and it was quite magnificent. There were meals being delivered and just absolutely wonderful support for the kids and for Kim, my wife. Just wonderful. And uh, we have remained very close as a group, not because of my, my, my illness, it's just the nature of the group, and we were very lucky. There was a real closing of ranks. It was terrific, so that the kids really didn't, didn't have to see us struggling through it alone. There was always someone to turn to. Yeah. Mm. I definitely think cancer's brought my family closer together in some way, shape or form, whether we pinpoint that pivotal moment as... Mm. Like, we've always been close, similar to what you're saying about you guys, but I definitely think having that, I don't know, something so serious and dangerous and scary dangled in your in front of your face does. I think that's exactly right. It's, yeah. it's adversity and you face it together and there is a bonding that, that happens. It's an unfortunate circumstance. It has to be that way. But it is it's life-changing. The whole thing is life-changing at so many levels. I'm very lucky... I think, in terms of the experience that I had, apart from the actual disease, was kind of positive. 
There, there was a kind of bonding within the family. There was, a, there, there was a kind of, we've faced this adversity, we can face almost anything as a family. My relationship with Kim, my wife, ch- changed but brought us even closer together. And certainly other aspects of life are affected as well. We haven't talked about it yet, but things like personal a- ambition and drive... To, to, to get to the very top of a tree. You don't have the same dr- drives that, that you had before the treatment of the, the condition. Rather, it brings perspective as to just exactly what this old life is all about. That has an effect right across the family. I think that's right. Absolutely. I, you'll have to ask your mate Alex about that. I will. <laughs> I think I got it there. Alex, right. you're tuning in? Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, it's interesting. I... The more I talk to people and the more mates I talk to and the more family members and of mates that have been through cancer, I do ask the question, which you've just answered already, but like having that light bulb moment, I guess, whether that's like through your actual treatment journey or after or when you're finally better or in remission, but by the sounds of things, you did have that light bulb moment in terms of oh, yeah. realising. Yeah, yeah. And again, a lot of that I can take back apart from the family perspective, the Seeing my counsellor over over a long time and talking and having him reflect back to me stuff that I'd said earlier on, all that sort of stuff, that has an effect of changing perspective as well. So that all of the stuff that used to be really important to me fell away and, and other stuff, much more important stuff, came to the fore. And there was something else that, that, that assisted as well. I got into... Um, it's not meditation, but mindfulness that I think everyone has heard of nowadays. That sort of mindset of thinking about what's going on right now and what's good about what's happening right now, as opposed to worrying about what's not going to happen or is going to happen badly in the future. That's just wasted energy. So that's a change of perspective in itself. Now, I actually became a student of that to the extent that I studied anything. I became a bit of a practitioner. And so that in itself has an effect of changing your life as well. So I probably wouldn't have ever come to that if I didn't have if I didn't have the condition. That's amazing. Oh, I think it is. Yeah. yeah, it is amazing. It is. It's pretty insane how it makes so much sense. Like you go through this process and you go through these treatments and you go through this hardship, but then somehow you magically appear on the other side, and you just stop worrying about crap. Yeah. In a weird way. I think that's right. I think that's right. Or, which is stating the obvious of what you just said, but also practising mindfulness puts a lot of things into perspective. It does. It brings you back to right now and what's good about right now. And, and holding your family closer, your friends closer. Because yeah, yeah. that's good. And it's yeah. right now, so just bring it in. So, and it's everything's temporary. Yeah, I suppose it's temporary, but... Some of the important things that we're talking about, they're permanent. Yeah. So there's... Ignore me. <laughs> so the dramas, they'll pass. They're just like clouds drifting across. Yep. They'll be gone. But the important things, like the mountain that you built or the lake that you're sailing on, it's always going to be there. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. Is there anything in particular that you want to highlight from your experience with cancer? Any pivotal moments? I think what to to the advice that, to the extent that I can give advice to anyone to the sort of pivotal moment for me was realizing that I am going to have to be patient about what is going on. I was so used to ha- having some sort of malady that is fixed either by medical treatment, pharmaceutical treatment, or something, and you get better and get better quite quickly. What the sort of cancer experience has shown to me is that that there is the potential in every in everyone to have permanent changes put upon them that you've just got to work out and so I use the term the new normal so that there there are aspects of what happens to a person that 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 has a serious bout of cancer that is going to be probably part of their lives forever and I've come to the view that I've just got to let it unfold as opposed to expect to get better or expect things to improve and things like that. So I think that's, that, that isn't necessarily a, 
particular event that led me to that sort of position, apart from just the general experience, has has led me to that conclusion. Going with the flow. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in the past you thought you had some, like, essential control over the way that things are going, and you do. Of course you do in your life, but there, there are certain things you've just got to say, I'll just take a step back and let it unfold. And whatever whatever is visited upon me by cancer, I'm just going to have to get used to. Yep. And to a large extent, that's what's happened with me because as a result of radiation and so on, I don't have a particularly good sense of taste. I have a dry mouth that, that, that impedes a lot of the foods that I eat and things like that. So that I've had to... I've had to be patient with. I've just had to understand that's the way that's going to be and readjust my way of thinking. That's probably one of the sort of pivotal sort of moments. One of of the things I want to talk about, especially when I'm interviewing people who have directly been affected with cancer, like myself, because I do, I interview a lot of people, whether it be like mothers of people or friends and family and yada yada but somebody that has had cancer Mm. and I'm asking you this personal question because I know it's something that affects me Mm. and it's something that I've learnt to deal with and I guess like sit with and be okay with and you were talking about it before in terms of the anxiety associated with cancer but does it cross your mind like are you scared of getting sick again? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I'm scared of it. It's the reason why I keep going back to doctors, obviously. I'm, it's always there. It's always there. But I think it's less fear nowadays, but it's something that I have to deal with. And I suppose it comes back to the mindfulness stuff that we were talking about there before, that, that you just can't allow that sort of stuff to crowd in the present. You've got to let it away and then get back to what's important, which is right now. So I'm, I'm not scared, but it's there. And I think it'd be impossible not to be that way. Mm. <laughs> I think the human condition is that you're well and truly aware. Of, yeah, it's funny sometimes it when it does creep in. Yeah. It's like, could you not do this, my yeah. lazy little brain, please? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it is, it can be petrifying if you. Yeah. And, go down and, that tunnel. And it's probably the case that the younger you are, the more of an issue it is. I'm in my sixties now. I've done all right to get this far. But I remember what it was like in my 50s. And for guys in their 30s, 40s and 20s, it's going to grow in terms of an issue. Yeah. But I do think that it is possible to, to deal with it in that you can sit in the rubble with this sort of problem but not let it crush you. You, you can readjust your way of thinking to allow it to be there but concentrate on what's much more important. It's a part of us. It doesn't define us. Exactly. You're doing a great job. You're a very good storyteller. Were there any, because I want people to be able to listen to this podcast and be able to relate to you and I and whoever else comes on the show, but did you have any coping mechanisms that you remember whilst you were having treatment? Yeah, yeah. I can't quite remember whether this is the word, but the word that I use is disassociation. I managed to get myself into another place when I was in acute treatment. So when I was recovering from surgery or when I was having radiation done, I would attempt to take myself to another place. And specifically, (laughs) I used to take myself sailing. So just sitting, I'm not a lifelong sailor. I've only ever sailed a few times, but there is really something lovely about being under power of the wind and the sound of water rushing past. And so I just used to take myself sailing. And one of the really great holidays of my life was when our family got onto a charter boat that we chartered for. It wasn't a charter boat, it was a hire boat, but it was an 11 metre catamaran up in the Sundays. Now we spent four days or five days just sailing around the place. And that's where I would take myself. So that was my coping mechanism. The rest of it, outside of that, as I went into the sort of recovery phase and then rehabilitation, that was when I had to consciously work on this, I use the term again, mindfulness, that, that concentrate on the now and not allow everything else to. And you can actually switch off those 
sort of bits of rubble that are crashing down. You can actually put them in their place and concentrate on what is the good that's going on at the moment. So that was my sort of coping mechanism. Is that what you meant? That's good. I want to put a lot of emphasis on, on this next question, just because it is a question that a lot of people often ask me when they know someone who's going through a diagnosis or someone who's going through treatment. But what can, what should friends and family do in terms of how can they help you or do you have any advice in that regard? Because I think there's a lot of things you shouldn't do that people do. It comes from a good place a lot of the time. But yeah, like I, I know for myself, a lot of people would say, oh, my grandma had the same cancer as you. She died. <laughs> and I would just be, oh, that's very sad, but also probably not what I want to hear right now in terms of I've just been diagnosed with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm. What, yeah, what's your take on that? Oh, I think family, that they instinctively know that they just have to be there. It's not really, there's not much that they can do, family. They just do it. You don't, my wife, as I said before, she simply took over the role of parents, both parents, and she just did it. You don't advise people to do that. That's just really what she did. I think one of the, one of the things is that has come up many times in discussions in support groups and other places and so on is cancer patients don't necessarily like people saying things like, you'll be right, it'll be fine, look, it'll just pass. Because it comes back to what I was saying there before, that you're so used to going into things and medical treatment, they'll give you a pill or they'll give you some treatment and you'll get better. It's not necessarily the way that it works with cancer and that anxiety that we have about recurrence or what's going to happen next is very real and people saying you'll be right is really not very helpful at all so my 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 sort of take on it and the way that I deal with it nowadays when I'm talking to people who have cancer have had it is that you just say that's bloody terrible gosh that's no good mate Mm. or bugger something like that because that's really what Everyone wants to have recognised that they have some sort of issue. But I don't think she'll be right that rosiness that some people come out with, not all, is all that helpful. And I think at a personal level, friends, again, my experience has been that friends know what to do, just be there. And I use the term, I've used it already a few times, just sit in the rubble with the person, just sit beside them and, you're right. Just Are you show okay? Up. Yeah. Mm. Just be there. And you'll be right. Jeez. Yeah, but you'll, you'll be right. <laughs> oh. That's not a good one, but it's not a bad one. It always comes from the heart. These are always well-intentioned statements. I think it is. it is very difficult for a lot of people that haven't been in that situation or are in that situation to know what to say. So I do understand. Like, I think people have had a fair few mates be like, oh, this has happened, I don't know what to do. And it's either like, it's either like, sorry, you be there and you show up and you be present or maybe just don't, but mm. accept the fact that you're not being present. Do you know what I mean? You can't sit there and should I be there for someone? I don't know what to say. You either have to be present or not. Yeah. And or your attempt at trying to be present. Yeah, yeah. Uh, th- there were times in my sort of recovery months where I was at home just yuck after treatment where there, there were times that, that the prospect of someone dropping in and just saying hello, doing that very thing that I just suggested, that just being there, that was a dreadful thought. I just didn't want people to turn up. And then there were other times when I would sit there thinking, I wish there was just someone sitting on the sofa beside me. So it's really hard when you try and advise people what's the best thing to do. Just, I think probably it's really just be, just go with whatever you want to say and, and then watch the person who is, who's suffering react. And if it's a good reaction, then keep it up. If it's clearly not a good reaction, then don't, don't. do it. Yeah. <laughs> So there's nothing, I think what I'm saying is you don't have to be present. Yeah. Your time for presence will come. If you're worried about whether you're impinging on someone's suffering by just turning up, then don't do it. Safe in the knowledge at some stage or other, if it's a good friend or a good relative, then their time will come. There were proper times where I wouldn't want anyone to be there at all Mm. whatsoever. It's just let me be alone. Yeah, yeah. And you 
potential visitor has got to be aware of the fact that that might be the case and not be offended if there is some sort of negativity that comes your way. Just leave and fit in. <laughs> yeah, just sit there, thank you. <laughs> Shut up. What has life after cancer been like for you and your family? In terms of my, my career, it changed s- slowly. It became evident to me that I wasn't going to be able to maintain anything like the standard that I'd had earlier on in my career. And it brought the end of that particular career to an end much, much earlier than it ever would have been part of my planning. But in many ways, what has unfolded since has been better for me. I suppose I have to say that it has been better for me because my wife Kim has kept on working, so we haven't gone into instant poverty. But from a personal viewpoint, I've left all of the sort of things that I used to regard as important in terms of career development and achievements and so on. I've left that behind me and I've gone into something now that I'm really enjoying doing it. And I'm doing a few things now. I've got a couple of mines in, in fires and stuff, which is just terrific. And I'm able to fit in my sort of post-cancer life into this new mould. So it's worked really well. So I'm working part-time. I'm doing a lot of stuff, as I mentioned, at the hospital, just by going up there and lending my experience to, to staff that want to listen. So it's been pretty good. I've kept a level of fitness, which, is, which has been good, and I've had some achievements in that regard as well. So it's been... That coupled with the sort of... The sort of bonding that's gone on in the family. There have been some positive changes there. There have been some negative changes too. Everyone goes through those. So overall, it's been okay. Much much better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. I think that's important. Everything panned out. Yeah, yeah. Nothing really has worked out anywhere near the sort of bleak outcome that I thought at the time. (laughs) This is bad. This is really bad. But it's unfolded all right. It's amazing how where your mind can go. Yeah. (laughs) What can happen? Yep, you've got to bring it back. I've got to bring it back. <laughs> Look at you now. What do you do when you go up to the hospital? The hospital, particularly the Royal, is, has decided that there's a role for what they call consumers, that is to say patients and carers and all that sort of stuff. There's a role for those types of people in the development of treatment or the development of models of care and stuff. So there's people that are engaged by the hospital called consumer representatives, which is what I am, that have had first-hand experience, either as a lived experience as a patient or as a carer, whatever it might be. And we sit in on various committees within the hospital that is monitoring what's going on in the hospital in different areas of treatment. So there's cancer and there's internal medicine. There's all sorts of other areas of medicine that have got consumer representatives sitting in various committees talking on a regular basis about the way that they do business and lending their stories to whatever is. So the clinicians come up with terrific new ideas and terrific new approaches to do things. And then they turn to the consumer at the table and say, so how does that fit in with your particular experience or experience of fellow consumers? So I do that. So Interesting. I sit, yeah, it's really rewarding. And the Royal has, got a, has really got a terrific attitude to bringing that sort of experience to the table at every level. So I like to say that at the Royal, the, the, the engagement of consumers is part of the DNA of the hospital. They really want to know what the consumer's got to say about the way that they do business. That's good. It's terrific. I had no idea that part of that aspect even existed. It's growing. It's growing right across the board. It has been for some years now, and I've been fortunate to have been part of that over time, and I encourage anyone that has been down the track, if they want to give back, then just let the local hospital know that they're available. I'm writing this down, by the way. Can yeah. everyone hear my keyboard? <laughs> Let local. See, <laughs> so, yeah, that's so interesting. I didn't. I had no idea that hmm. existed. I'm going to ask you one more final question before we wrap things up. I have already asked if you had any piece of advice 
what would that be? And that's patience. But for anyone who's currently going through a diagnosis or dealing with one or dealing with a family member or anything like that, do you have any other advice? Oh, I think probably keep talking, keep communicating. It, it's very easy. It's too easy to simply return to that glass box that I've been describing, that darkened space. It's easy to fall into that and not want to come out. I'm not saying that you really have to make an effort, but don't forget to keep talking to people. I think the, I think the role of professional assistance in psychologists, social workers, psychiatrists and so on, I think that is really important because this is something, this condition of cancer is something that we can't deal with. You, don't, you can't go and have a little lie down and it goes away. You really need to just keep on talking to people. It doesn't have to be professional. It can be family, friends, just someone. So I think that keeping on talking is the stuff that's going to keep you in touch with outside that box, which is really important. I'm not sure if it's advice. It's really just a suggestion. <laughs> the glass box, was that something that slowly went away? Yeah, through work and self-care. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's possible to find yourself in that black box. I have dreams. 15 years down the track, I'm still having dreams that take me to the black box. But it's no longer there. I just remember it so vividly that I just watched from my little black box looking out to the light and seeing so many people just getting on with their lives as if they didn't know or care. Didn't know, <laughs> apart from family and stuff, but people walking around the street that I used to look at. How can you get on with your life when I'm going through this? Well, it's nonsense. But yeah, the black box breaks down and it goes away and the light comes in. Yeah. <laughs> How beautiful. <laughs> Gary, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's been my great pleasure. And great for time. sharing your story. Yeah. And I think it's phenomenal that you're still here with us today, which is great. And as you said, it's been positive. Mostly. Most. Yeah, mostly. And it's, mm. it is a journey. But, yeah, thank you so much for sharing and for continuing to doing your work, especially with the hospital and helping other people well, like ourselves get through it. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great project that you've undertaken here and I really hope that people tune in because it's worthwhile. Just listening to stories helps a lot. Yeah. And you're Thanks. not alone. No, no one's alone. No one's alone. And we'll see each other soon. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Okay. Done. Woohoo. Good well job. Well done. Thank you. High five. <laughs>